History happened everywhere. A random place, a random time, and a topic pulled from the hat. The challenge? Find the fascinating. Uncover the unexpected and share the stories. You're listening to... History happened everywhere. My name's Pete Goddard and I'm here in the HHE studio with the ball cock to my assistant. It's Mr. Ryan Weir. Wait, what? You prevent me from overflowing. Ah, oh, see, that's nice, <laughs> I think. You wouldn't want a toilet without a stopcock, would you? It's teamwork. Last week, the Dursleiter gave us Scotland. 1600 to 1650 was the date and the topic was excrement. Yeah. So, Ryan, what kind of a show have you got for us today? <laughs> well, Pete, in this week's dirt-filled episode, we're heading back to the early 17th century to witness how the people of Scotland dealt with their droppings. We're going to see how poor people found wealth in the size of their dumps. We're going to crawl inside the privies of tenement outhouses. We're going to meet the poop-eating eels in Edinburgh's murkiest waters, and finally, we're going to squat down and relieve ourselves in the company of greatness as we learn what it takes to poop like a king. Grab yourself a bidet and a freshly bleached brush. It's time to go round the U-Bend and find ourselves in the land of neeps and tatties. Welcome to the land of the brave. Welcome to Caledonia. Welcome to Scotland. Well, Ryan, a heck of a topic, I must say. I don't know whether this makes things easier or harder. Everyone does it, let's face it. You're absolutely right, Peter. OK, well, look, where, to, where shall I start, Pete? I think you should start by telling us where we are. OK, well, officially, we're in Scotland, but known locally in Scottish Gaelic as Alba. This is a country that is part of the United Kingdom, located in the northern part of the island of Great Britain. It includes over 790 islands and has a total area of about 78,000 square kilometres. That's about 30,000 square miles. It's roughly two and a half times smaller than a France. Scotland is perhaps best known for its geography. It has a rugged coastline, deep valleys, monstrous locks, and of course, tall mountains like Ben Nevis, the tallest peak in the British Isles at 1,345 metres. And I've climbed every single bit of that. And I have been to the bottom of it. (laughs) (laughs) But apart from its stunning landscape, Scotland is also known for its historic castles, its distinctive culture, the language, whiskey and, of course, deep-fried Mars bars. Every year, Scotland attracts around 16 million tourists. That's nearly three times as much as the total population, which is currently around five and a half million people. The capital is Edinburgh. The languages are English, Scottish Gaelic or Scots. The national animal is the unicorn. The flag is known as the Saltaire or St Andrew's Cross, and it is a white diagonal cross on a blue background. The national anthem was composed in the 1960s, and it pays tribute to the country's history, people, and their struggles for freedom. It's called Flower of Scotland, and it sounds a little something like this. I have to say, I think this is the best national anthem. You would certainly guess immediately that it was Scotland. Absolutely. I feel like an honorary Scot listening to this. I want to be a Scot. I wouldn't mind being a Scot myself. They're a hardy folk. Yes, they are. I want to be Orwulli, or the Bruins. <laughs> I think you're more likely to end up being one of the people from Train Spotting. <laughs> Here we go. Bring it to a close. Big finish. Come on, guys. Scotland facts! <laughs> Lay it on me, Ryan. Okay, so Scotland has the highest concentration of redheads. An estimated 13% of the population have naturally red hair. It's the highest proportion in the world. So if you like redheads, it's the place to go. That is the stereotypical Scottish look, isn't it? The redhead. Yes, it is, sir. Yeah. Uh, Scotland is also home to the world's shortest commercial flight. Oh, really? Where does that go from? Yeah, so if you buy a ticket, you can fly from the island of Westray to the island of Papa Westray in approximately two minutes. 
<laughs> You'll have covered a distance of just two and a half kilometres, 1.7 miles. I suppose walking isn't really an option though, is it, I guess? Well, swimming. <laughs> the traditional national dish is haggis, which uh, we've talked about before. This is a sheep's stomach filled with offal, onion, oatmeal, suet and spices. I know you like a bit of haggis. Love a haggis. Yeah, but a more modern national dish though, Pete, is the munchie box. What is a munchie box? Well, it is a cheap fast food item sold in takeaways across Scotland and the contents typically include kebab meat, fried chicken, pizza, chips, fried rice, chicken tikka, samosas, onion rings, noodles, pakora, naan bread, garlic bread, coleslaw and whichever sauces you want like curry sauce or whatever. All in a pizza box. Sounds more of a chest than a box I would say. It's a big meal. Yeah. Oh I did forget to mention that it also includes a salad item. Oh good. Just one slice of cucumber. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah so I was going to get you a munchie box but they don't do them in Croydon so your heart will thank me later. Yeah I'm sure that's probably given me extra lifespan at least. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Pete. Are you wearing a kilt? A bit, yeah. I did a DNA test and found that I'm actually 50% Scottish. Oh, right. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, it explains a lot because basically I 50% love all things Scottish. How do you mean 50% love? Well, I love the bagpipes, right? But only the way they look. I just can't bear the sound, though. That's not really loving bagpipes, is it? And whiskey, right? I love how it looks. You know, all lovely amber liquid and traditional bottles. But? It tastes awful. I I mean, I just can't stand it. Again, not really liking whiskey. And and the movie Braveheart, right? I love that film, but only the bits that Mel Gibson is in. Well, that's fair enough. So I bought this half kilt to celebrate my heritage. What's a half kilt? Well, it's like a regular kilt, right? But it's only 50% of a kilt. So just the front half, look. Oh, Ryan, I can see your bum. Oh, sorry, do you want me to turn it around? No, 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 no. Oh, Ryan, no. Oh, I can't unsee that. Away the ones. So, Pete, do you want to know some history? I would love to know some history. All of it, in fact. (laughs) Okay, well, look, Scottish history begins with early man. Of course. Of course, yeah. He appears around 12,000 years ago when the last of the Ice Age glaciers melt, revealing a swathe of virgin land which is just fit to be hunted and gathered upon. 6,000 years later, around 4,000 BCE, Neolithic settlers arrive and they introduce settlements where they domesticate animals and do some basic farming. 2,000 years later, they start making bronze. A thousand years later, the Iron Age starts, which sort of coincides with the arrival of a group of people called the Picts. And these guys dominate most of the northern and eastern parts of Scotland for years to come. The Romans invade Britain in 43 CE, but fail to conquer Scotland. So they just construct a giant wall called Hadrian's Wall, supposedly to mark the limits of the empire, but more realistically to sort of keep them from being attacked by the tribes living north of the border. I've always admired that as an approach. Ah, these guys are hard. So let's just build this wall and pretend (laughs) they're not there. Yeah, it's the the equivalent of me being scared by whatever's under my bed by putting the (laughs) duvet over my head. Exactly. (laughs) By the 6th century, Scotland is now split into three kingdoms. You've got the Picts in the north, the Scots in the west, and the Strathclyde in the southwest. 300 years later, in the 8th century, the Vikings arrive, occupying and settling parts of the mainland and sort of along the northern and western isles. A century later, in 843 CE, the king of the Scots, a guy called Kenneth McAlpin, which sounds like he just ordered like a munchie box. <laughs> he does like, you'd, you'd run into a Kenneth McAlpin and not think, twice about it really wouldn't you yeah that's right but he unites the Picts and the Scots together and there they form the Kingdom of Alba within a century they expand their territory and the Kingdom of Scotland is formed ruled over by King Malcolm III and this marks the beginning of a long line of Scottish monarchy In the Middle Ages, Scotland has to contend with the obsessions of the English, who want to conquer the North and bring Catholicism to the people. We like to bring things to people that they don't necessarily realise that they want. (laughs) It's kind of a trademark move, isn't it? It sure is. And uh, this is the time where Scottish forces, led by legendary figures such as Mel Gibson, sorry, William Wallace and (laughs) Robert the Bruce, fight to maintain their independence. By the 16th century, a Scottish Reformation happens, whereby the Catholic Church is replaced by the Protestant Church of Scotland. But any hopes of keeping Scotland out of England's grip disappears in 1603, when the Scottish king, James VI, becomes James I, the first monarch to unite England and Scotland and create Great Britain. 
Fortunately, despite the Union, Scotland remained a separate nation with its own legal and religious systems, but by 1707 the governments of Scotland and England emerge together and Scotland loses its ability to make political decisions independently. In the 18th and 19th centuries, Scotland then enters a period of intellectual and scientific achievement, known as the Scottish Enlightenment, which, in combination with the broader Industrial Revolution, transforms the country's economy and society. In the 20th century, the Scottish National Party, the SNP, is formed with devolution from Great Britain being its highest priority. In 1999, the efforts of the SNP led to the establishment of a Scottish Parliament, which means that today Scotland has political powers over things like health, education, and taxation. In terms of devolution from Great Britain, though, the SNP has had less success, with a referendum for independence held in 2014 resulting in 55% of voters opting to remain part of the United Kingdom. Disappointed by Britain's departure from the European Union in 2016 as part of Brexit, a second independence referendum was proposed for October this year, 2023. However, the UK Supreme Court ruled that the Scottish government cannot hold a referendum without the consent of the English government. And fuddly enough, that consent has yet to be given. And that brings us to today, where Scotland continues to grapple with questions of national identity, the future of its relationship with the UK, and of course, its place within the European Union. But all of that aside, Scotland remains a beautiful country, rich in culture and stunning landscapes. The Scottish people have continued to show strength and resilience in the face of adversity, their wisdom and intelligence gifting the world iconic and important inventions such as the television, the telephone, the fax machine, penicillin, insulin and the hypodermic syringe. They've given us radar, an ultrasound, the decimal point, the first cloned mammal, tarmac, and of course, where would any of us be without the creation of golf? Yeah, I could do that last one, to be honest with you. <laughs> the rest of them seemed important. I'll stick to tarmac over golf, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. Point being, it is a braw and bonny land, which in the words of national poet Robert Burns and the voice of comedian Billy Connolly is best described as Wherever I wander, wherever I rove the hills of the highlands forever I love cool you've been practicing that haven't you that actually wasn't bad I have to say <laughs> I actually haven't been I haven't had time <laughs> <laughs> so Pete excrement eh excrement it's uh ryan and pete's excrement adventure <laughs> that's gonna go on all of our posters now <laughs> otherwise known as poop scat muck waste dirt droppings doo-doo duty dung all a lot of names for the waste matter which we discharge out of the body through the rectum that's right, Pete. We're talking feces. This could be a whole new podcast on its own. <laughs> <laughs> Derived from the Latin word excrementum, which sounds like a terrible Harry Potter spell, <laughs> it means to sift out or separate. But excrement first appears in English around the 16th century and quickly establishes itself as a mostly sort of scientific and medical term. But amongst everyday folk, there are plenty of other words and euphemism used too. Words like caca, deuce, turd, crap poo, and of course, shit. My mother would be so pleased with me right now. <laughs> <laughs> we are a podcast for intellectuals. Poopy. Poopy. <laughs> anyway, each of these vary depending on your sort of your locality, how formal you're being, depending on what sort of specific situation you're in and audience that you're in front of. For example, you might not say, I need to crap to a member of the royal family. Instead, you might just say, I need a number two. Is that what you would say to a member of the royal family? Is yeah. that from the official etiquette handbook? Are you saying you're going to say, I need a crap? I think I'd say something like, if you'll excuse me, I don't think I need to specify exactly the activity, unless they really follow it up with a line of questioning that I'm not prepared for at all. Yeah. Anyway, well, that's what I'm going to say. I'm prepared. <laughs> so anyway, in Scotland, the word jobby is the most common word for excrement, and it arises from the 20th century from the phrase to do a job. I'm going to go and do a job. Jobby. I've certainly never been employed to do it, 
but I have done it, I suppose, whilst at work. So, yeah, fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) So in Scotland, during the early 17th century, people referred to faeces as a stool, with one unknown Scottish author writing that if he had any quantity of pottage, which is like a stew or a soup, I was sure to release two or three stools. (laughs) (laughs) Glad he's documenting things accurately. That's important for posterity. And fun fact, the practice of examining human excrement for like medical reasons, not for fun. (laughs) Although I don't know, whatever. Whatever tickles your fancy. It was known at the time as strunt keeking. Strunt keeking. I like that. Strunt keeking. Yeah. Another author said, you that have sometimes braved even my doctorship cannot be ignorant of the science of strunt keeking. No, you cannot. So it's pretty important to look at your (laughs) stool. But anyway, generally speaking, the average human drops the kids off at the pool at least once or twice a day with a total daily load of around 100 to 250 grams. That's about three to eight ounces. The Guinness Book of World Records lists no winner to the world's biggest poop. I looked. (laughs) But the fossil of an eight inch long, five centimetre wide, 1,200 year old Viking poop was discovered in 1972, which is widely considered to be the largest recorded in human history. Uh, Do with that information uh, as you will. I don't know what to make, but this Viking must have been quite the fellow. Yeah, he died unknowing of the fame that was due his way. Anyway... (laughs) While known as solid waste, backdoor bananas usually consist of about seventy-five percent water. You're right there. <laughs> I feel like you're not listening to what I'm saying. Yeah, so they usually consist of about seventy-five percent water. In fact, only twenty-five percent is solid matter, of which thirty percent is dead bacteria and cell debris. Another thirty percent is indigestible food. Fifteen percent are fats. Twelve percent is inorganic substances like calcium and iron phosphate. And 3% is protein. Chocolate hot dogs are generally brown in colour, and that's because food in your intestines mixes with bile and something called bilirubin, and it all combines together to sort of make a brown colour. Like if you take a bunch of different Play-Doh or whatever and mix it, mush it all together, it sort of creates that brown colour. And the smell, well, that's caused by a bunch of chemicals produced by the bacteria in your gut, which helps you to sort of break down the food. Now, Pete, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking... Okay, Ryan, cool poop facts, but how much excrement is actually produced in Scotland every year, right? Yes. How much poo does Scotland produce, Ryan? (laughs) Well, I did the math, Pete. And uh, if we consider a total population of five and a half million people, plus the 16 million tourists, each producing an average load of around 128 grams a day, then over 365 days, that equals roughly one million metric tonnes of excrement, the weight of 17 average size cargo ships. But Ryan, does that account for the Scottish diet? (laughs) It definitely does not account for the Scottish (laughs) diet. And it also doesn't account for the other creatures living in Scotland. So if we take into account all the livestock and the pets too, so cows, sheep, pigs, dogs and cats, they produce roughly 90,000 metric tonnes of excrement a day. Then that's a total of around about 34 million metric tonnes of excrement being produced in Scotland every year. That's the weight of 560 cargo ships or enough to fill 14,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools. I would be steering clear of those swimming pools. (laughs) Don't fancy doing the breaststroke. My interest in water polo has waned considerably. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Anyway, enough of all that. Time to get strunt keeking all over the early 1600s. All right, so Pete, before we go full caca, let's head back in time to see what life was actually like living in Scotland during the early 17th century. The first thing we notice about Scotland is that it looks very different than it does today. Across a relatively barren landscape of bogs and mountains and moorland, we find a number of rural settlements based around churches, castles and mills, each of these linked by a small number of like muddy tracks. Each of these settlements consists of clusters of farms surrounded by narrow strips of cultivated land. 
Now, while there were a few folk who practiced various trades and crafts, in the early 17th century, farming was the major occupation. And when we talk about a farm in Scotland, what we're actually talking about is six or more families all working together as tenants in what's called a firm town, a roughly 300-acre farm sharing equipment, looking after livestock, and making sure that the town has sort of a healthy supply of food, products, and services. But they're not the only ones doing farming, Pete, because pretty much everyone at this time is farming, either commercially, like the firm towns, or just regular families surviving on what they can grow for themselves on a plot of land roughly 20 acres in size. And what almost everyone is growing is crops of cereal. Now, not frosted flakes and fruit loops, I know that was where your brain went. I'm talking grains like barley and oats, which can grow quickly in Scotland's short summer months. In fact, no matter who you are in this period, your life depends on a starch-based diet, comprised mostly from oats. So much so, in fact, that Scotland in the 17th century is known widely as the land of oats, with traditional oat-based foods like porridge, haggis and oat cakes regularly eaten most days by almost everyone. Oats were so important, in fact, that there are reports of children being sent off to university with a sack of oatmeal, and when that sack ran out, they had to come back home to their parents and get a (laughs) re-up. In 1755, Samuel Johnson, guy behind the first dictionary... I'm aware of his work. He wrote as his description of oats, a grain which in England is generally given to horses, but in Scotland supports the people. So this derogatory way of describing the Scottish people was later responded to by an unknown Scotsman, considered possibly Robert Burns, who said, that's why England has such good horses and Scotland has such fine men. Oh, nice. Snap back. Yeah, snap back. Anyway, point is, in our time period, oats are the most common form of food for the people, but not the only food, because veggies like potatoes and swede or rutabaga are also common, as well as the occasional meat like pork and chicken, then known as reek hens. Now, red meat, like beef, was pretty much being reserved for only the most wealthy people, but the number one form of protein came from the water, with salmon, herring and eels all consumed in great numbers, as well as oysters that were sold by the bucket load because they were considered a dirt-cheap food for the poor. How times have changed, eh? Oh, indeed, yes. That's pricey business now. It is indeed. Now, at home, food is served based on the hierarchy of the family. So dad gets the biggest and most nutritious portions. That's followed by the eldest son, then the younger sons, then the daughters, and lastly, the mother, who would, if lucky, get the smallest plate with just a fish head or a tail to nibble on. Well, that's a bit off colour. Yeah, poor old mum. I allow my partner to have up to a fin. (laughs) Fin and beyond. (laughs) As many eyeballs as she wants. (laughs) Now, this seems shocking, but it was really kind of considered necessary to ensure that the men, the breadwinners of the family, had the strength to just keep doing their job and bring home a supply of money. Now, you might think that this level of nutrition would have impacted the general health of the women. And you'd be right, because modern researchers have found direct evidence of nutritional deficits in women by looking at the skeletons that they found and finding pitting in their bones from lack of essential vitamins. Wow. It's a rough life being a woman. But Scotland isn't just a collection of rural villages full of oat farmers. In cities like Dundee and Edinburgh, at least up until the late 18th century, people were still involved in growing their own food, some having their own gardens and others sharing common fields. Individual properties were home to not just the householder, but if she was still alive, the elderly mother, any unmarried sisters, and of course any children that were not old enough to get their own homes. In some cases, an older son who had married and started a family of his own, he would also live in the property too, in sort of an extension built onto the house so that they could sort of have their own household. Bit like a granny flat. Younger brothers that were no longer children but were part owners in the family business, they would live in the house too, usually on the upper floor. And you might think it absurd to have all these people all living under the same roof, but you have to remember that it was also common for the father to remarry and have a second family too. I feel like the way house prices are these days, that's kind of where we're going again. (laughs) This could be the past and the future both. I'm coming to move in with you, I tell you. You have to squeeze in through the several other female family members, but uh, they'll only get a thimble of oats, so you should be higher up the pecking order than them. Where's my nan sleeping? We're eating your nan, I'm sorry. (laughs) 
And of course, let's not forget that during the early 17th century, towns like Glasgow, Dundee and Edinburgh, they're all growing rapidly. So, for example, in Edinburgh, over the course of 150 years, the number of people nearly triples from around 12,000 people in 1550 to around 50,000 people in 1700. And that's not including the various livestock, which, of course, also increases to keep pace with all the people. So as a result, the density of housing increases to try and keep pace. Medieval-style timber-framed houses are now being replaced by stone structures, and in Edinburgh in particular, limits on space in the old town means that people have to build upwards, meaning that we see the construction of high-rise skyscrapers, tenements basically, which could be nine stories high, all filled to the brim with vast numbers of people. And this growth in population meant that growing your own food became almost impossible, with people therefore moving from growing their own food to buying their food at the market instead. So, in summary, Scotland in the 17th century is based around two distinct groups of people. Those who live in rural communities, making their living out of growing crops, and an ever-increasing number of folk being crushed together in the bustling towns and cities. And as we'll learn in the next section, Pete, the one thing that connects both groups is how significant waste was in their daily lives. I look forward to hearing about it. Welcome to Clan McDonald's. How can I help you today? Oh, I'll have a regular beef burger, please. Oh, we don't sell beef. Oh, okay. Well, uh, what do you have? Well, we sell Big Macs. Ah, great. I'll have one of those. It's two oat patties between two toasted oat cakes. Oh, I, I don't love oats, so maybe not. Well, we do nuggets. Are they made of oats? Yeah. But I don't want oats. Billet of fish? Ah, okay, excellent. It's fish coated in oats, and the fish is made of oats. Oh, that's not good at all. We do a Happy Meal. Ah, that sounds good. Uh, I'll have one of those, maybe. It's a small bowl of oats with a toy. And the toy is? A tiny sack of oats. Look, I'll just get a drink. Okay, one cup of porridge coming up. No, no, look, this is ridiculous. Well, we have ice cream. Ah, perfect. It's made from oatmeal, though. That's fine, I'll take it, it's fine. Sorry, machine's broken. Oh, for goodness sake. Well, look, if I can't get you anything, sir, there is a Taco Bell next door. Ah, I love Mexican food. Taco Bell, here I come. No, 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 not Taco Bell, Taco Bell. They do tacos, burrotos, and enchilotas. Oh, why? Have a nice day. Okay, this section I call shitting in the country. <laughs> Today in Scotland, if you want to pinch a loaf or release the hostages, you can be pleased to have the luxury of retreating into the privacy of a warm and comfortable bathroom, sitting on a porcelain throne to relieve yourself, safe in the knowledge that once your business is complete, the waste will be swept away from your home with a simple flush of cold water. But that hasn't always been the case. In fact, it was only relatively recently that humans have been able to sort of rely on that luxury, with Alexander Cumming getting things going in 1775 with the first patent for a flushing toilet, after which soon followed plumbing, sewage systems and treatment plants to process all of that poop. So that means, in Scotland, in the early 17th century, doing a jobby was a much more different procedure than we're used to today. In the most rural parts of Scotland, defecating wasn't so much of an issue. You had a large number of places to pick from. In a bucket, in a field, by the river, under a tree, behind the barn, pretty much. Wherever you stood, squat, poop, wipe with some leaves or moss, and you're away. The poop sort of getting absorbed into the ground or washed away with the rain. But in less rural parts of the country, your excrement and urine formed part of your domestic household waste, along with dirty water from cooking, cleaning and washing, food and bones, ashes from the fireplace, building waste, rubble and stones, broken glass and metal, all of that sort of stuff. And where did all that waste go? Well, for most people, all that trash was thrown on top of a midden. Now, we've covered middens before, haven't we, Pete? Yes, we covered shell middens. We have indeed. So middens are basically waste heaps, collections of discarded trash that builds up, sometimes over generations, and into huge stinking piles of refuse. And across many communities in Scotland, it was common to have your own personal midden kept in an area in front of your property called the foreland. 
And not only were these personal middens common, but they were essential. Because unlike today, where waste management is mostly taken care of by sort of local authorities, in Scotland at this time, dealing with your own waste was a household matter. Personal waste was considered private property, not public, and something that people were incredibly protective over, going so far as to prevent anyone who might even try to steal it. So why would the contents of your midden be so important? Well, you'll recall that farming was an essential part of life for most people during this time, commercially, but also for the smaller family farms which made the food that they survive on. And they knew that to grow strong yields of crops, you have to constantly replace the nutrients in the soil with a fertiliser, rebalancing it so that the plants grow strong and healthy. The plants take nutrients out of the soil, you have to put it straight back in, or else nothing grows. This was a process that they called gooding the earth. And it turns out that the best way to good the earth was to apply the nutrient-rich fertiliser from the organic waste rotting in your stinky family midden. And so they simply gathered up the midden as needed, carted it into the back garden and dumped it straight onto the ground. As a result, in fact, Pete, it's not uncommon for people today to find small pieces of broken pottery, glass and even coins scattered across these fields, items which would have been discarded into the midden along with the organic waste. And you might think that this sort of extra trash in the soil would make farming more difficult, but actually the opposite is true. The reason they did that is because when spread across the ground, those sharp fragments of little hard pieces not only added to the nutrient content of the soil, but also acted like little teeth, helping to break up clumps of soil and improve the ability for water and air to get down to the plant's roots. So pretty clever. I thought there was going to be because if you drop a coin in the midden, that coin is gone. <laughs> You're not going to go diving for that, are you? <laughs> yes, having a gigantic pile of crap rotting outside your front doorstep might not sound ideal, Pete, but when it is critical to the survival of your entire family, you kind of let it slide. And middens were so critical, in fact, that people literally referred to them as wealth. Oh, wow. In the town of Banff, for example, there's a 17th century record of the magistrates insisting that the main route from a local nobleman's townhouse to the parish church was absolutely foul and a disgrace for any noble lord that should wish to walk through such filth to get to the church. As such, they wanted to clean up the area, but the townspeople argued that the waste was their property and shouldn't be carted off just because the nobles didn't want to get their shoes dirty. So what you're telling me is I've been just disposing of a great amount of value through the course of my life. Yeah, you've lost a lot of wealth. I'm going to start a front garden midden tomorrow. Do it. Your neighbours will love it. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be tossing coins in before you know it. Yeah. So threatened by the idea of the people rising up, these magistrates decided to simply warn the townspeople that the situation was getting out of hand and remind them of their duty to properly maintain their middens and prevent it from seeping out onto the street. (laughs) Yeah. Seeping out. That's uh, (laughs) Yeah, they actually recommended mixing in sand to absorb liquids. Oh, that's nice. (laughs) Yeah. Now, that was just one example, though, because other town councils, like those in smaller boroughs like Elgin, Banff, Selkirk, Peebles and Stirling, they didn't have the same worries, and they introduced measures to licence waste collectors to move the middens to locations outside the borough. And this wasn't seen as being too bad, because people would still keep what they needed for their own farms, and the rest would be carted away by the council, leaving the place slightly less smelly. Interestingly, many of the people who took up the licence to collect the waste were actually lawyers. There has to be a connection. Now, not to collect the waste themselves, obviously. They were too well-educated and smart enough not to do the dirty work themselves. They just knew that there was a profit to be made from the waste by selling it on to the larger-scale commercial farmers. So, in essence, the council charges the people as part of their common fees, the equivalent of modern-day council tax, and the lawyers make money from gathering and selling on the waste. And there was never enough waste to keep farmers happy. So many lawyers became incredibly wealthy from just selling crap. Wow, I suppose it's the 17th century version of ambulance chasing. What would that be? Toilet tracking? Toilet toiling. (laughs) Inevitably, though, the council saw how much money the licensees, the lawyers, were making, so they decided to take on the challenge of collection for themselves. How brave. (laughs) Uh, Very kind. Civic-minded. Yeah. And side note, many of the cleansers that they employed were actually from just one place. Dundee. Because throughout the late 16th and early 17th century, Dundee had the notable reputation for producing the best waste collectors. (laughs) 
if there was ever a plague outbreak or you needed to get all the middens swept off your streets, Dundonians were your men. And they made a lot of money out of it too, simply from being regarded as having great skills in cleaning. Wow, the Dundee doo-doo divers. But anyway, while the collection of middens was evolving, the use of them didn't really change for centuries. In fact, people were still hoarding their poop right up until the 1920s when sewers finally got installed across most of the country. Up until then, people kept their middens using on their vegetable patches. In fact, if you've got a compost heap in your garden, you've created your very own little midden for gooding the earth too. I don't good the earth. I just leave it to dry out and become a cracked, parched wasteland because I'm civilised. You are. <laughs> but OK, anyway, look, so that's toilet life in the country. But what in the more settled areas? Well, we're going to find out about that after this. Welcome back to the Home Shopping Channel. And Sally, boy, do we have a product here that I'm excited about. Well, I'm excited too. This, Sally, is the modern midden. Goodness me, will you? Look at that. It is an incredible bit of kit from the people at Crapola. Weren't they the guys who made the butt scraper and the washer butt? They did, Sally, but technology has moved on since then. Oh, it always does, doesn't it? So what does this modern midden do? Well, the whiz kids at Crapola, they call it a fully self-contained excreta containment unit. Well, that sounds very impressive. But that's just a fancy way of saying it's a simple and easy way to convert your body waste into cash. No way. Now, you're probably wondering how this works. Oh, I very much am. Well, it's super simple, Sally. Look at this. When you need the bathroom, you just drop your waist into this wide, easy access opening at the top. Now, I used it myself earlier, and it couldn't have been simpler. Take a look. Wow, that's a big one. It just sits in there. But the modern midden can take it, Sally. Don't worry. Now, with a press of this button... Oh, I can hear it working now. Internal processors convert your deposit and, uh, oh, um, yeah, that's, oh, I'm, I'm sure that's nothing to be alarmed by. I, I mean, of course, this does have all the latest safety features. And the, um, internal controls will make sure that nothing terrible will... Oh, my God, it's... It's everywhere! Oh, oh, have mercy! Oh, oh it's got in my mouth! It's in my mouth! So, to order your very own... Oh, Modern Midden. Just call 0800 0800 00 Midden. While stocks last. Okay, so in the cities and towns of Scotland during the early 17th century, we find people who had much less land to live off and spending much more time in closer proximity to other people. So using the toilet and disposing of the waste wasn't quite as easy as their country folk friends. The overwhelming majority of families used simple chamber pots made from pewter, wood, brass, earthenware, glass, that sort of thing. Known locally as pos, gazundas, chanty or cuniac, these were kept, for convenience, under the bed to be used at night, especially by the elderly and the infirm. But what did they do with the waste that they collected in these pots? Well, middens were still a thing, but these were now sort of more communal, either kept in backyards or on specific locations based around the town as designated by local authorities. There was a network of ditches that weren't intended to, but often served as sort of open sewers. And of course, some people, either lazy, inconsiderate or just plain caught short, dumped their load wherever they saw fit. In fact, if we're looking for a description of Edinburgh during the 17th century, we might be tempted to look to Sir William Brereton's review, written during a business trip in 1635, where he described the place as doubtless a most healthful place to live, were it not the inhabitants' most sluttish, nasty and slothful people. Their houses of office, their toilets, are never emptied until they be full, so as the scent thereof annoyeth and offendeth the whole house. One star. Brereton 69. <laughs> well, I for one am taking the phrase houses of office <laughs> into the future with me. I'm just popping to the house of office. <laughs> <laughs> now, while it's likely true that Edinburgh did have a particularly bad smell, it's worth noting that at this time, most towns and cities, including those in England, had similar stink issues too. And as such, Brereton's account should be taken somewhat with a pinch of salt, because during this time and throughout the 18th century, English 
authors were keen to write sensationalistic, purposefully anti-Scottish comments. Their exaggerated accounts of Scotland in the past and present were often highly engineered with myths and legends created as a way of making their own country appear better than it was, or at least painting a picture of the past as a grim and unsophisticated time to elevate their own modern society as cultured and refined. It was ever thus. Indeed. And one such legend is that of Garde Lou, which suggests that at 10pm every night, the windows of Edinburgh's buildings would suddenly open out and all the residents would empty their dirty chamber pots into the streets below, shouting the warning, Garde Lou! A corruption of the French expression, Prenez Garde Lou, meaning beware of the water. But this story is an exaggeration, or at least an over-interpretation, because while it was possible that some dirty water would probably have been thrown out of windows on occasion, it certainly wasn't solid waste or latrine waste. Well, not always, because as we've said earlier, organic waste was valuable. But beyond that, most people just generally had a respect for their towns and wouldn't literally want to shit on it from above. So while occasionally it did happen, usually it was a result of the poorer residents living higher up in the tenements, simply just growing tired of having to walk down multiple flights of stairs with a sloppy chamber pot. Yeah, I could see that. Nobody wants to live in streets that are running with sewage, do they really? No. In fact, laws were put in place to prevent it from happening. In 1662, a little after our time, a statute was enacted that imposed a fine for anyone, in quotes, discharging and casting out of water pots in foul water and filth at windows upon the high streets and venals night and day. And to ram this ruling home, the statute also added that if you were caught doing it, you didn't pay your fine to the authorities, you paid it directly to the person who reported the offence. Ah, motivation. Exactly. It basically incentivized incentivized neighbours to keep an eye on each other and make sure that the laws were being followed. But while that might have prevented the people of Edinburgh from throwing their waste out of windows, that didn't mean that they weren't averse to getting rid of it elsewhere. Because in some properties in Edinburgh, there were things called jaw holes. These were in the floors or walls, and they had the purpose of allowing people to pour dirty water away so that it could run outside directly into the maze of ditches in the streets outside. Now, these jaw holes were designed to drain liquid waste and rainwater, not human waste, but unsurprisingly, some did that anyway, resulting in both the jaw holes and the outside ditches becoming blocked with excrement. This obviously caused a nasty smell and often drew complaints from neighbours, and like today, these complaints were often directed to the local authorities, who received so many complaints that they actually set up nuisance courts, as they called them, to assess the various grievances and pass judgments and penalties on the guilty. In 1617, for example, a nuisance court in Stirling received a complaint from a James Duncanson who said that his neighbour, Patrick Kinross, had constructed a jaw hole through which water and filth fell into his home to his great harm. The court sent people to assess the complaint and Patrick Kinross was ordered to lay drains to protect his neighbour's property from any future damage. But as overcrowding became more of a problem, and many of the new houses were being built without gutters or jaw holes, a significant number of people were now in the position of having to go to a larger effort to deposit their waste, especially those up on the upper floor tenements. Sometimes it was just easier to sneak out of your house and secretly dispose of it you know, in some back street somewhere, somewhere out of sight. In fact, in June 1612, Perth Council received a report about a group of residents who were throwing their waste in inappropriate areas, to which the court concluded that these persons that lies for ye should be weighed it. These people who drop their waste should be punished and penalised. Quite right too. I'm on the side of law and order on this matter. Angry Pete. Grr. <laughs> but clearly this wasn't enough of a prevention because filth continued to grow on the streets at such a level that some local councils had to find alternative methods with dealing with it. Some funded communal public toilets known as common houses of easement. But in a town called Eyre, the local council had to get even more involved, concluding that they needed to pay employees to keep the streets clear. They started by trialling different individuals over several one-year periods between 1611 and 1616, before finally settling on just one guy called David Hunter, who did the job for eight straight years in a row between 1616 and 1624. And do you know what he got paid for that? A thousand pounds. It's actually six Scottish pounds, which uh, at the time was around about 700 pounds or one thousand dollars. Oh, and was he from Dundee? <laughs> he was not from Dundee. But his job was to collect and heave the town's muck out into the countryside. A job so big that it said that he had to use 160 horses pulling sledges behind them to get the excrement out. Wow. Yeah. And while much of the waste came from the streets, some of it was also collected from homes which were using holes in the ground as a latrine 
green pit. Now, these were called shields, sometimes known as closets, jakes, close stools, easing chairs, chairs of office. These were basically deep pits dug into the ground that had a wooden plank over it with a hole cut out. Now, these shields were often part of separate outbuildings in the backlands, but on occasion they were also indoors too. Now, obviously a growing pit of stinking sewage in close proximity to where you live led to some pretty awful smells, so homeowners would sometimes add lime and sand to try and cover the waste and suppress the smell. But while the smell was a problem, for most homeowners the major issue was that inevitably the pit was going to become so full that it might start to overflow. And it was their responsibility, remember, to empty it. So it would mean them getting down into the muck and literally digging it out to be carted away. Because if they didn't, angry neighbours would of course go straight to the nuisance court and they'd raise a complaint. In 1614, Alexander Bowie of Stephen Law's Close in Edinburgh, he complained to the city's court that his neighbour, John Muffet, had two privies which daily breaks out and runs in the lathe houses basements of his tenement, rotting and consuming the walls thereof to his great hurt and scathe. Yeah, you don't want a neighbour like that. Yeah, come on, John Moffitt. <laughs> John Moppet, more like. Moppet, Moppet, Moffitt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but even with the nuisance courts, the public toilets and the street cleaners, that still didn't really help improve things much for the people. And in Edinburgh, they also had a much bigger issue to deal with. And we're going to hear about that after this. I'm singing in the rain, just singing in the rain, what a glorious feeling, I'm happy again. Oi, you know that's not rain, right? Don't judge me. I'm singing in the rain, just singing. Okay, so, Pete, you've been to Edinburgh, haven't you? I have indeed. It is a big and bustling place, wouldn't you agree? Yeah, it's a marvellous town. It is indeed. And if you were wandering around, you're probably at some point you're going to get a bit tired, you're going to want a bit of a rest, right? Absolutely. Yeah, well, the best place to take a rest is Prince's Street Gardens. It's a public park situated in a valley between the old and the new towns. Springing to life in 1830 and taking about 46 years to develop, the park is now a beautifully landscaped public space. It attracts hundreds of thousands of visitors every year to see the lawns, the flower beds, the trees, the bandstand, the fountain and the world's oldest floral clock. What's a floral clock? It's like a clock made of flowers. So what, they grow a different flower every minute to represent the hands going round? <laughs> <laughs> I may have misunderstood the, the notion there. <laughs> but prior to this being a place of calm and serenity, the site of Prince's Street Gardens has a much more tense and chaotic history. And it all starts around 15,000 years ago, when the Ice Age ends and a large valley is left behind, gouged out of the ground by a glacier. This valley fills with melted ice water and becomes a lake, or in Scottish, a loch. The loch sits there doing loch things for a period of time until eventually the water recedes enough that by the 14th century there's no mention of any water there at all. However, around the middle of the 15th century, King James III, he's around and he orders the valley to be flooded. And he wants to do this, not to have a nice little water feature, but to strengthen the city's castle's defences. Edinburgh Castle, at this time, being the most besieged castle in Britain. And so, a nearby stream is dammed and the valley is filled with water, and soon becomes known as North Lock, or Norlock. But that isn't where the story of the Norlock ends, because throughout the Middle Ages, as the old town became more and more crowded, it became commonplace for citizens to come and just throw their household waste directly into the lock. And so, over the next 200 years, Norlock transforms from a large, marshy lake into a gigantic, open cesspit, a foul and disgusting part of Edinburgh that produced such a vast amount of methane that it concentrated in clouds so large that it said that in places it replaced the oxygen in the air and caused people to suffer symptoms of hypoxia, like confusion and hallucinations. Good lord. Yeah, and it wasn't just household trash and raw sewage that went into the lake. It was blood, meat, offal, animal excrement from all the various slaughterhouses, skinners and tanners too. It was a stew of rotting mulch. And into that stew of rotting mulch also went criminals. 
people who were sentenced to death by the punishment of what's called duckings. This is where large crowds would witness them being submerged in the lock as a form of trial by ordeal. And an ordeal it certainly was. Yeah, for sure. In 1628, for example, a man called George Sinclair and his sister confessed to committing incest and they were sentenced to death in Norlock. They were placed together in a large wooden chest, holes were drilled in the sides and the chest was just thrown into the lock for them to drown in. Oh my lord, that's grim. Yeah. Side note, 200 years later in 1820, some workmen were digging out a drain and they found a chest, opened it and found the skeletons inside. Oh, no way. Oh, that's horrible and tragic all at the same time. Indeed. But drowning in the lock was also an essential part of Edinburgh's witchcraft trials too, where men and women who had been accused of being in league with the devil were dunked in the lock to see if they were guilty or not. They'd have their thumbs and their toes tied together and then be put on a ducking stool and dropped into the filthy water. If they drowned, they were not considered evil. And if they survived, this was enough proof that they should be immediately dragged from the loch, strangled and then burnt at the stake. Yeah, I see no good outcomes there. Yeah, that's kind of the point, I guess. It's estimated that more than 300 men and women were subjected to this kind of ducking, with 11 women being executed like this in a single day in 1624. But Norloch wasn't just used for capital punishments. It was also a hotspot for suicide, with one particular location called The Pot being the site for many a sad and desperate soul killing themselves in the water. Crumbs, you really have to have given up on life to choose to go that way of all, of all endings. It's a pretty bad way to go, I imagine. But it's not all bad news, Pete, because Norloch was also a haven for eels, a creature which is remarkably resilient. It can adapt to a variety of environments, happily surviving in a low oxygen water and scavenging on food scraps and rotting meat, something that Norloch was full of. In fact, Norloch was where Edinburgh's eel farm was kept, with fishermen pulling out vast numbers of eels on a daily basis to be bought and consumed by the public. One such purchaser of Norlock eels was a guy called Johnny Dowie, a tavern owner who was famous for serving a specialty eel pie that was said to have a rather distinctive taste. I feel like you're going to follow that up with some horrible thing that gave it that taste. <laughs> I think you can imagine. Fortunately, just after our time period in 1685, drowning in the lock was outlawed as a form of punishment. And shortly after, a couple of other laws were passed too. One, to prevent cattle from drinking from the lock. And two, to prevent people washing their clothes in it. Not because they were worried about the dangers associated with drinking or washing in dirty water, but because the authorities were worried about the amount of water that was disappearing during times of drought. Because despite the loch's sorry state, it was also common for people to be drinking the loch's water, with much of the water being piped through to breweries to make their local ale. Oh dear. Pint of poo ale and a pooey eel pie, please. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so this law in particular was essential in making sure that the lock wasn't literally drunk dry. Anyway, eventually, by the mid-18th century, the smell of the lock had become so offensive that wealthy residents complained about the pollution. An initial plan was proposed to reroute an entire river to wash out the lock, but this didn't happen. And ultimately, the lock was drained completely. So yeah, in Edinburgh, during the 16th century, dealing with toilets and the resulting waste must have been quite the experience. But not everyone had such a torrid time. A lucky few had a much more luxurious latrine-based experience and I'm going to tell you about that, Pete, after this. Good afternoon, Mrs McTavish. I'm your lawyer for the upcoming witch trial, and I've got great news. Oh, thank you, Sonny. Now, I want you to know that this is a travesty of justice, and I'm here to ensure you are found innocent of every charge. Oh, that's wonderful news. This will all be over soon. You just plead not guilty to all charges. Oh, I can do that. Great. And then, when you're tossed under the water of the lock, all I need you to do is drown. What? Yes, I think we can convince everyone of your innocence if you just drown. If you don't drown and just bob to the surface, well, ooh, then it's guilty as charged, I'm afraid, and then... But I'll be dead anyway. Dead innocent? Oh, but this is ridiculous. Oh, I see, I see. So you want to be burned at the stake? Well, of course not, dear. Then we're agreed. Drowning it is. Well, there is one minor issue. Uh, well, other than me dying? Yes, yes, yes. You see, when you're under the water, it will be hard to hang on to something with your hands all tied up. Oh, my God. But not to worry. I can help with that too. Simply fill your pockets with these rocks. 
Right. Now, whilst I can't offer any guarantees, I'm certain they will help prove your innocence. Right. Okay, so we're agreed. Well, do I have any other choice? Well, I suppose there is one alternative to avoid either drowning or being burned at the stake. Oh, well, what's that? Give your soul over to me, the Lord of Darkness, and fly from this dank dungeon atop a broomstick. Plus a free black cat when you sign up. All right, where do I sign? Okay, sign here. And here. Get an initial here. Oh, I love the human legal system. Makes my job so easy. So, born in Scotland on the 4th of September 1566 to Alexander and Margaret Erskine, their son, Thomas Erskine, grew up in a life of luxury. His parents owned some pretty significant estates in Scotland, and uh, he enjoyed the benefits of having lots of money and prestige. Thomas was fortunate to be educated at Stirling Castle, where he made friends with a classmate called James. In fact, his father became a guardian of James, so the two boys spent a great deal of time together at school and at home, helping to sort of build what would become a lifelong friendship. Now, the thing about James was he was quite a unique child because at just one years old, James had become King of Scotland when his mother, Mary, Queen of Scots, abdicated the throne and fled to England. Therefore, the boy that Thomas Erskine was close personal friends with, almost brothers with, was none other than King James VI of Scotland. So as the boys get older, their friendship continues, and in 1585, when Thomas is just 19 years old, James makes him one of the gentlemen of his majesty's bedchamber. A rather sexy-sounding job, but was actually actually more of a significant political role rather than anything untoward. (laughs) But in 1600, when Thomas was now 34, he and James were invited to hang out with some acquaintances called the Ruthven Brothers at their home in Perth in central Scotland. When the Ruthven Brothers pulled a dagger on the king and kidnapped him. So Thomas convenes a rescue mission, during which time James is saved and the Ruthvens are killed. As a reward, James awards his friend Thomas a third of the Ruthvens' lands and gave him the title Lord Erskine of Durleton. A year later, in 1601, James made him a privy councillor, which, while being a nice pun for this episode, doesn't actually (laughs) have anything to do with excrement, unfortunately. It's just a name given to a close advisor to a monarch. But the titles don't stop there, Pete. They just keep on rolling because in 1603, James travels to England and he ascends the throne. If you remember, he becomes James I, the first monarch to rule both England and Scotland at the same time. And James brings his best friend with him, making Thomas captain of the guard. But it's a year later in 1604 where we are most interested because that's the year when James gives Thomas another promotion this time to a role called Groom of the Stool. So, within the Privy Chamber, which was the name for the group of James's closest advisers, there was a smaller, more select group of people known as the Gentlemen of the Chamber. Now, these were James's BFFs. They hung out with him full-time, hunting, playing games, attending ceremonies, getting drunk, generally having a level of access and influence that others couldn't even dream of having. And some of them were assigned specific roles, like groom of the chamber, which simply meant helping the king with his appearance, helping him wash, putting on his outer clothing, things like that. But Thomas had the most coveted role, chief gentleman of the chamber, otherwise known as groom of the stool. Groom in this instance meaning officer of the English royal household, and stool meaning significant seat. And thus, as groom of the stool, Thomas was charged with assisting the king with all things related to his throne. I'm glad you explained that because I had in my mind that he'd pointed to a stool and gone, groom that for me, would you? (laughs) (laughs) But we're not talking the actual kingly throne. We're talking the other throne, the bathroom throne. Because, oh, oh, oh. because by 1598, the term stool had also started to be used to refer to excrement. And as the groom of the king's stool, this became a play on words, which described Thomas' role pretty closely. Basically, he was responsible for ensuring that James had the most excellent bowel movements. Thomas would prepare the toilet, assist with the removal of the king's underwear, keep the king company while he defecated, ensure appropriate hygiene using wet linen or a brush made from hay known as an arse whip, 
<laughs> dressing the king again, and all while doing his best to restrict the king's senses from the putrid smell of the resulting product. Wow. So he's basically in the room going, so uh, how's it going? It's going all right? Good. Yep. Everything. Yep. Everything above board. Yeah, that's good. Okay. Yep. I'll fetch my brush. The <laughs> <laughs> whip. So uh, Thomas was also personally responsible for transporting the royal toilet on journeys, a toilet which was basically a chamber pot housed within a wooden box that was covered in a cushioned brown velvet and fringed with silk. Anyway, Thomas must have been really good at his job because he remained groom of the stool for 11 years, <laughs> every day of which he would accompany his friend as he sat on his padded velvet covered stool and defecated. Now, during this time, he might have been asked for counsel, listened to sort of personal issues, political woes, and of course offered his advice and guidance, all while readying himself for a gentle wipe of the kingly arse. The two men remained the closest of friends until James's death in 1625, when Thomas, never forgetful of their homeland, made sure that James was remembered as King of Great Britain and not just King of England, a title which would have pleased his friend and certainly the people of Scotland. I'm curious as to what he put on his CV after that when he had to find a new job. What did you do for the last 11 years? Turd monitor. <laughs> Ass scrubber. <laughs> now, it's worth pointing out that during his reign as king, James made several notable achievements. For example, introducing the King James Bible, which became the de facto version of the Bible for English-speaking Protestants, bringing about peace with Spain, promoting Jacobean literature, such as the works of William Shakespeare and Ben Jonson. But another, perhaps accidental achievement, was the promotion of indoor toilets. Because while a simple chamber pot in a wooden box might seem unsophisticated to our modern bottoms, in the early 17th century, the king's toilet was seen as being startlingly new technology. And as is so often the case when famous and powerful people adopt new technology, it becomes desired and fashionable to everyone else. And so, during our time period, we start to see versions of James's boxed commode rolling out across Scotland, across the homes of the rich and wealthy. And so there you go. We've completed our motion, Pete, and it's time to wipe and flush the episode down the pan. <laughs> but before we do, I'd like to offer my most sincere thanks to my own Privy Council, without whom none of this episode would have been possible. I'd like to thank Richard Oram, Professor of Medieval and Environmental History at the University of Stirling, Dr. Aaron Allen, Institute for Academic Development at the University of Edinburgh, and of course, archaeological researcher Morag Cross. Without your help, I would have been lost. So thank you all. So there you go, Pete. Excrement in Scotland during the early 17th century. Well, I feel like I have uh, voided my need for knowledge completely. And uh, I feel that was a highly satisfactory episode, Ryan. It was a challenging topic, but you managed to cover it with extraordinary vigour. <laughs> with excrement. <laughs> <laughs> it was, I have to say, not a shit shit episode. <laughs> I'm desperate for the loo. Sire. Yes, Thomas. <coughs> Sire, as you know, I've been the groom of the store for 11 long years now. Yes, and a fine job you have been doing. Oh, the jobs have been all yours, Sire. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> so what's on your mind, my friend? Well, I was just wondering if perhaps it was time for me to, you know, move on career-wise. But why? You have the most prestigious role in the court. Indeed, a great honour, Sire. But I was wondering if perhaps I was ready to take on a new challenge. But I need you here, Thomas. You have been my closest friend for decades. One wonders, Sire, if it's possible to be too close? Nonsense. You are doing magnificently. I won't have any more talk of this. Moving on. It's just that one aspires to more. Ah, you want to move up the body politic. Yes, yes, exactly that, Sire. Not a problem. I decree from this moment you shall also be the esteemed scraper of the royal earwax. Oh, thank you, Sire. You're most welcome. And I know what you're thinking, Thomas, and let me assure you, you will be secure in these jobs for as long as I live. Oh, terrific. And how is Sire's health these days? Excellent. Oh, that's good, Sire. And to recognise your invaluable contribution, I brought you a present. Could it possibly be a fresh arse whip, sir? Yes, it is. Come, let's try it out right away. Very good, Sire. I must say, that was an impressive guess, Thomas. Just a stab in the dark, sire. Ow! Ow!
Well, Ryan, that was brilliant. I thoroughly enjoyed that. I was worried that it would be a lowbrow episode, but actually highly academic, highly interesting, and with quite the benefit of a lot of high-powered academic input by the sounds of it. Yeah, I absolutely did. Well, I think with that support, you can be assured of a good grade from the Dursley in the verdict. From the nuisance court. That's what we should call it. Nuisance court. <laughs> that is what it feels like, indeed. But enough of this trash and waste. It's time to flush that all away and start afresh with a fresh, clean bottom. <laughs> <laughs> I think I will try and avoid the bottom in my next episode, but let's see what gets brought up by the Durs later. OK, rolling it out now. Let's get it started. OK, Pete, are you ready? I am indeed. OK, and your place is... Bangladesh. Bangladesh. Interesting. Interesting. I don't know really anything, but it's got to be something. It's, it seems like a reasonably well-documented area. Well, it depends on your time, doesn't it? And that's what's up next. Your time is... The Victorian era. So that's 1837 to 1905. Okay, that's pretty broad and relatively recent, so I, I feel good about that. Okay, and your topic is... Nine Lives. Nine Lives. Ooh. Okay, so your episode is Nine Lives in Bangladesh during the Victorian era. Okay. Well, I'd better get busy. That's uh, Hopefully I can bring you something fascinating. We always do. We always turn up something, don't we? <laughs> well, we'll see what you bring, shall we? <laughs> Knowing you, it might be one person. <laughs> don't want you cutting I'll any just, corners. Uh, I'll just tell the same story nine times. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Ryan, that is our show for this week. Thank you, everyone out there, for listening. If you'd like to get in touch about any of the things we've talked about on the show, or just to say hello, you can reach out to us through our website, hhepodcast.com, or by email at Pete and Ryan at hhepodcast.com. That's right. We'd love to hear from you. And you never know, you might end up featured on a future show. Uh, and if you're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or Mastodon, you can find us at hhepodcast. And if you subscribe to those, you're going to get an alert every time we post extra content, like facts we didn't use, photos of toilets, pictures of poop, you know, that sort of stuff but of course we'll be back again soon with the verdict but until then a huge thank you to you ryan and to you peter and that is it i guess all that's left to say is you've been listening to history happened everywhere Hey, Ryan. Did you know that on the back of a shampoo bottle, there's a little symbol which tells you how long the product is good for once it's been opened? So if it says 12M, it means you get 12 months after opening. Oh, is that right? Yeah. And you can also get significant hydrating action using jojoba oils and pro-vitamin B5. Well, that's kind of interesting, I guess. And, and did you know that amino acids and ceramide works from the inside out and leaves hair strong and manageable? Ryan, what are you talking about? Well, you know when you're on the toilet, right, and you forget your phone? Yeah. And all you have to read is the back of the bottles in the bathroom? Right. Well, I forgot my phone. OK, I get that, but I'm trying to have a bath here. Ah, right. Sorry, mate. <laughs> Catch you later.